Well, good morning, Northfield. So glad to have you guys here with us, whether you're still in your pajamas or not. We have a few people who aren't who are here, which is great. Um, Tress and Adele, I just want to say one thing, okay? This is what we Christians do. We run into uncertain times with the certainty of Jesus. And so just sitting here this morning, watching you guys be prayed over and just thinking through your lives over the last 10 years and just watching how God has grown you, um, my heart couldn't be more full. And so I pray that you go with the blessing of the Lord and that you have great strength in his spirit to accomplish just getting the gospel out and training people and loving them well. Um, It's pretty awesome. So as we get started, um, I'm just going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive right into Esther 7 and 8, and after I pray, we're going to have the scripture read. But I want you to be thinking again, um, as we consider this idea of, uh, of pride versus humility, you see this kind of playing out over and over and over again, and, and pretty much um, Esther 7 and 8 really mirrors Esther 3 and 4, but kind of in an opposite reflection. And so just be paying attention to everything that happened with Haman and lifting himself up in chapters 3 and 4 and the way that we see the opposite occurring with, with Mordecai and with Esther in 7 and 8. You really need to pay close attention. It's powerful stuff, but I don't want to miss the fact that we're going to be taking a look at just like 24-hour life of Haman. We want uh, to be people who are humble, filled with God's Spirit, and know what we're doing by... Um, by the truth that he provides. And so uh, there's quite a story to be found today. So why don't we just pray and ask the Spirit to open our eyes. Um, I'm going to pray, and I want you guys at home to take a moment too, just to kind of circle up and pray and ask the Lord's uh, blessing for his Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to what he wants us to hear today. So Father, in your name we come. And because of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, his life, death, and resurrection has made it possible for us to gather um, here in a building and virtually online and in our homes. And I pray that there would be three gathered so that what we ask in your name, Lord, you would be pleased to do. And I pray that our hearts would not be lifted up within us, but that we would be made low and understand what it means to come under your authority and your direction and ultimately the perfect revelation of your son through your word. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine, went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face, 
Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the kid. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in him, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the twenty-third day, and an edict was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, one hundred and twenty-seven provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used as bread from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods, on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, really urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So a total turn of events, a total shift.
Here you have just 24 hours in the life of Haman, and, and everything is totally flipped. I mean, just consider, if you, if you walk through a timeline, here's, here's Haman, the king, and Esther. They get done having a banquet. It's awesome. The food is incredible. The wine is tasty. And it goes on and it goes on. And finally, when it's over, they're all dismissed to their separate places. And Haman goes home to brag to his posse about everything. He goes home to say, look, everything is going as planned. I decided to do this, 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 this. And, and it's all coming together. In fact, Esther even honored me. And, and, and the king, he, he, he's, he's, he's all over it. Things are going amazing. This is incredible. And it said that his wife, Zeresh, and his wise men, which pay attention because they really should have been without a job by the time this whole ordeal is over. These guys really are not wise in the least. But what happens is he goes home and he brags. Now, in the home of the king, what's happening? He can't sleep. And if you go back a few chapters, you start to see how God is sovereignly lining things up. He can't sleep. He, he busts out the really light reading of the history of the Chronicles of the King. And he's, and he's like put right back to sleep. But his mind, boom, is awake when he hears, hey, wait a minute. My life was spared. Did I ever do anything for that guy who, who caught the plot in the courtyard? Did I? Never did. Oh, so then the king's mind is going, how do I honor this guy? I delight to honor this guy. Haman's asleep. Haman's happy. Haman is full of pride at home. He's got Zeresh, his wife, saying, you're awesome. He's got all of his wise men saying, you're incredible. And then he wakes up and, and, um, and he's taken to the next banquet. And he struts in there first to see the king. Before he's going to go grab a bite to eat, he goes in to see the king. And as he's walking in, he's thinking, okay, so I've got these gallows, 75 feet poles sticking out of my yard. Nice yard ornament, okay? I don't know how people this, right? So it would have to be the talk of the town. And he's going strutting into the king thinking, I'm going to get Mordecai impaled on that. And then I'm going to have the Jews wiped out. He didn't expect what was coming next. Because he comes walking in. And when he walks in, he's like, oh, uh. The king starts right in. Hey, what do you think I should do? I've got this guy who saved my life. He's, it's pretty amazing. How do you honor someone who you really, really want to give great honor to? And because he is so absorbed in himself, Mordecai, or sorry, Haman assumes he's speaking about him. And so when he assumes that, he's like, well, yeah, don't spare any expense. Do this and do that and do this and do that. And just like this swift turn of events says, do that all, but do it for Mordecai. So here you have Haman, who's, who's sworn enemy, really for no other reason than the fact that he won't take a knee before you, is now the guy that you have to put on a horse, you have to adorn with all these royal robes and everything, and then, not only if, like, if that's not enough, you're walking and you're saying, this is the king's person that he delights to honor. Right? I can imagine the seething jealousy rolling off his tongue as he's saying those things. Man, I love God's sense of humor, don't you? You can't read, find it boring. And so this whole thing happens, and, and, and what does it say? It says that as soon as it's over, Haman, it says he covers his head and rushes back home to basically whine to Zeresh and his wise men. So even, think about this, 
to, to cover your head is to be a show of mourning and lament and grief. What did Mordecai and Esther, what did they grieve over? What did they lament over? They lamented over sinful mistreatment of a whole people leading to what could be a genocide. Like, we're just going to wipe out this whole, like, just get rid of them. They're worried about more than themselves. And here's Haman going home, oh, I believe this. And he's whining to his, to his wife and to his wise men who are still not so wise. Don't worry, everything's going to be fine. And then while he's still whining, he's taken back to this banquet. And that's where we're picking up the story. And so if you, if you take away anything today, if you're sitting at home and you're like, I want to take notes, um, maybe this. Humility, it goes after the promises of God with quiet confidence. So think of Esther. Think of yourself. How do I pursue the Lord? How do I go after what he's promised? I would say we do that with confidence. So we're going to be looking basically at just two things, chapter 7, chapter 8. Uh, chapter 7, we're looking at the rise and fall of pride. Basically this concept from Galatians 6, 8, you know, if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap destruction. I'm sorry. If you choose to say, I'm going to walk, I actually had a pastor in college who would say this over and over and over again. It's drilled into my mind. He would say, choose to sin, choose to suffer. You bring on your own suffering in this way. This is what Haman did. And so we have, for chapter 7, the rise and fall of pride, really this principle of sowing and reaping. And then for chapter 8, we just have this idea of the bold persistence of humility. One that says, I'm nuddling for less than what God promised. And so let's dive right in. In the first six verses of chapter 7, you start to see how Haman's pride presumed. Leading up to this point, he presumed everything. Oh, the king must be talking about me. Oh, I'm going to be honored. Oh, I'm, I'm great. But look at how Esther handles things. Super careful. There's a quiet confidence with which she approaches the king. You know, in 1665, there was a breakout of the bubonic plague in England. Um, it's also known as Black Death. We really start to resonate more. I was making the announcement last week of how long Carol Stuber survived through a number of like major illnesses and plagues. Right, so Black Death was a, a monstrous plague um, haunting Europe. And in fact, Cambridge University, uh, it said, closed its doors. Hey, this isn't too unlike today, right? Everything's closing its doors. Let's just be done. And there was a guy by the name of Sir Isaac Newton who was sent home. He's a professor. Right? So he goes home, and he's in his garden, and he's contemplating life, and he's thinking through just what is happening. And all of a sudden, looking over in his tree, an apple falls. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't in terms of creating um, a whole scientific theory that like physics and everything is built around. Uh, <laughs> When I see an apple fall. When I see an apple fall, I'm like, crud, i got to clean that up. But uh, he used that as an impetus to put together a whole theory. And now we learn about gravitational pull. And um, it, here's the thing about gravity. And I see it every year. Every year I have an apple tree in my front yard. I don't think of Sir Isaac Newton, of course, but I do think of this. I do think all those apples that I don't pick and use, there's a few options for them. One, I've got kids who will probably throw them at passing cars. Um, two, 
it's just going to rot and smell. Three, I'm and so it, it's rising and falling, this idea of pride. Are you going to be somebody who's prideful? Guess what? You can keep climbing. Sooner or later, you know what's going to happen? Boom. You're going to fall. It's going to happen. There's really no way to get around it. And so this is what we start to see when we read Proverbs 16, 18, and it says that pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. You see, Esther comes into the king's presence, and she doesn't presume to know that the king knows. Because to this point, the king really hasn't proven himself to be terribly astute, has he? He's been someone who's kind of been asleep at the wheel and drunk most times. And so to see that he's like waking up a little bit, like, oh, what's happening here? And Esther carefully comes in, and she personally identifies herself with the fate of the people. I mean, she, she says, real, real simply, if it pleases the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. She still doesn't say, hey, I'm a Jew. But she's all of a sudden humanizing these people who in a few, like in eight months, are supposed to be annihilated. She's, she's connecting. It's a risky move on her part. And so just in case the king's memory wasn't jogged enough and he wasn't really paying attention, which, again, he's proven he really doesn't, she repeats the same word. And if you go back to chapter 3, verse 13, she says, um, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. She uses that same threesome. And all of a sudden, I'm sure the king is going... Oh, whoa. So wait a minute. And he's, he's going to start making connections. And you may be thinking little simple things like, seems like the slavery thing where she's like, hey, if we would have been sold as slaves, I would have been quiet. I don't want to gloss over that and just kind of skate past it. But basically it just means this. She's appealing to the king saying, we're going to be wiped out. And if we had been sold as slaves, it actually would have been more profitable for you. And so if we're wiped out, you off it. Because the king has already proven that he will take 10,000 talents of, of silver for what? For the life of a whole race of people. And so she's appealing to this side of him that's like, yeah, I'll take that. But it's, it's a really wise thing. And, and all of a sudden, the king gets really angry. And the king actually uses this phrase where he says, where is he? Who is he? Who has dared to do this? You're like, who has dared? I love, if you have an ESV, there's a translation note at the bottom where it says, whose heart has filled him? Meaning, how have you let your heart get puffed up? Who thought he was more than he really was? Paul actually talked in the Testament when he says, um, we ought to think of ourselves with sober judgment. It's like the opposite of the king. It's like the opposite of Haman, thinking of ourselves with sober judgment. I'm not greater than I really am. It doesn't mean that you think, oh, I'm a pile of junk, I'm crud. No, it means I think of myself the way that God speaks of me, the way that God sees me. So does that mean that I am more than a conqueror and that there's no condemnation for me in Christ? It does. That means I think of myself in those ways as opposed to, I'm garbage, I can't do nothing. So I want to take just 30 seconds right now and just kind of pause and, and parents or families or people who are watching this who are just together about that for a minute. Just that real simple question. How have you let your heart be filled? And take a moment to think about that.
All right, I'm glad you guys are solving the problems of the world in 30 seconds. I hope that this continues. We're going to take a few more of these little breaks throughout the sermon so that we can really uh, have an opportunity to apply what we're learning. Uh, it's great for us to gain new knowledge, but knowledge gained without it, it being put into practice actually leads to pride, the very thing we're preaching against. So we want to be cautious of that. Okay, so skipping down then to verses 7 through 10 is where we really see the total fall of Haman. In fact, you even see this phrase in verse 8 where it says, um, as Haman was on the couch. Now, I want to point something out that, that's pretty cool. If you really pay close attention, the, the author does this on purpose where he uses the, the Hebrew word nafal. It's N-A-P-H-A-L. It's this idea of, uh, it's translated falling. But he uses it strategically throughout the book of Esther to communicate this idea of, of falling. In fact, it's used in verse 8 where Haman is falling at the feet of Esther. In fact, in ancient Jewish literature, um, the Jews actually believed that Haman was walking toward Esther and the angel Gabriel just kicks his foot and trips him. It's a documented thing. It's actually pretty hilarious and I wouldn't argue against it, you know? And so you also see in, in chapter 3, verse 7, what are they doing? They're casting lots. They're rolling dice. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Actually, that term cast in the Hebrew is nafal, the fall of the dice, the fall of the dice. And then you start to see in verse 6, or in 6 verse 13, when, um, when Haman is talking to Zeresh and the wise men, they actually come back. The wife actually says, hey, look, before whom you have begun to fall, meaning is Mordecai a Jew? Because if actually what you're doing is against a Jew, we know that the God of the Jews is not somebody you want to mess with. You're going to fall. But Haman, too proud. But that term that they use there, whom, uh, before whom you have begun to fall, is that same Hebrew word, nafal. It's like a trip, a stumbling, a falling over. So in this twist of irony, Haman, the guilty man now, falls at the feet of Esther, the innocent, to plead for mercy. So you've got the king who's gone out to the garden, half drunk, trying to work it off, and he's, he's blown up in his mind, and, and, and Haman goes, oh no, I'm done for. And so he turns to Esther, and as he's walking towards her, he's falling towards her. The king turns around, king comes walking in and sees this, and he's like, what are you doing? In my own house, this guy's going to assault my wife. Are you kidding me? He's done. All the way at the top, second highest in the kingdom. Everybody has to bow to him except one guy, Mordecai. All the way at the bottom, his death is commanded. This is 24 hours. 24 hours in time. Imagine this. The horror. When, when the king's men bound Haman and they're walking back into Haman's front yard and they're impaling him on this beam... Think of his wife. Think of the wise men. And I use wise very loosely. Think standing there on the front porch going, oh my goodness. This is what happens to the one who goes against the God of the Jews. I mean, just the collective weightiness of God fighting for his people. I don't know about you, but this is us. This is who we have. This is our God who fights for us. We don't have to be in fear. 
We're not up against something that he can't overcome. And so I don't want us to be people who are like, I don't know. No, we have a sure foundation. We have an anchor. And what's interesting, phrase, that tiny phrase at the end of chapter 7 where it says, then the wrath of the king abated. Abated means to go away. It's this idea of, uh, you see this in Romans, where Paul says that he is the propitiation for our sin. And propitiation means, big word, but it means to steer away the wrath of God. That the wrath of God doesn't remain on me because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so here we even see that the guilty actually dies like he should. And the king's wrath, the one in charge, the sovereign, he's now no longer angry. You're like, what? On a cross? On a beam? So even there's this foreshadowing in the story of Esther of Jesus, the innocent, dying for the guilty and turning away the wrath of God that we totally deserve. And you're like, man, what a connection. God is so sovereign. He's been putting these pieces together for millennia. It's so awesome to see. And we don't ever want to lose sight of the fact that God has just, he's, he's playing this out perfectly. No one is going to figure out our king. No one. So truth to life then, Scripture is pretty clear. It says that we ought to pay attention to the times, and man, do we live in interesting times. Well, I would just say this, concerning our own hearts with pride. Pay attention to the times. Pay attention heart. Are there times when it's being lifted up? Is it being lifted up? How are you responding? What are some different things that are happening? I think the question that I would pose is just, Will you hide or will you rise after your nafal moment, after your fall? That, that Hebrew word nafal, after your trip and after your fall. And you say, well, why is that so important? And I would just put it this way. In Esther, we see the guilty get what they deserve. And then the innocent continue on, being none the wiser. Now think of this. The, the script is flipped in Jesus And so what does Jesus do? He's the who willingly suffers on my behalf so that I can be set free. So that even someone as wicked as Haman can have hope. Even someone as wicked and pride-filled as Haman doesn't have to surrender his hope. He can turn in repentance to Jesus. And so when people start to talk about repentance and it's all sadness and it's gloom and it's doom, that's garbage. What are you doing in repentance but saying, I want nothing but you, God? I want you more than I want my sin. I want you more than I want this money. I want you more than I want sex. I want you more than I want popularity and fame. I want you, you. And I haven't lived that way. So repentance ought to be a constantly joy-filled thing. It says in Hebrews 5.14 that when we're in the Word on a regular basis... That solid food is what it says. It's for the mature who by constant practice discern good from evil. You say, well, why is it important that I'm in the word? Why is it important that I'm in community? Because you're going to fall if you're not. So there's never a valid reason to surrender your hope even if you're Haman because the innocent died for the guilty. So chapter 8. What about persistence of humility? 
not settling for less than what God's promised. Remember, humility goes after the promises of God with quiet confidence. You see, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8, it says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. So remember, 24-hour period, Haman's celebrating with his posse, telling him everything's awesome. Like, next morning, sentenced to death, dead, whole estate given away. That's a bad day. <laughs> like, that's, that's really bad. But look, it's who's gaining favor. Humility gains favor. On that day, signet ring. Think of how hard Haman worked to get the signet ring of the king. He was conniving and working out circumstances and all these different things so that the king would say, oh, here you go. He even had to buy it, 10,000 talents. Remember? The whole income of the Persian Empire in one year so that he could have the signet ring and have all that power. And what does Esther do? She's humble. And the king says, here's my signet ring. You can make an edict in my name. And it'll stand. She doesn't lie. She doesn't connive. And she gets the very thing that Haman worked his tail off for and eventually died for. Old problem is that the whole issue of ethnic cleansing is still in play. While Haman is dead, the Jews are still sentenced to death. And so Esther, instead of getting lazy and putting her feet up and says, Oh, isn't that great? The blessing stops with me. I have been spared. Could you imagine if, if Esther would have been selfish? If Esther would have been self-absorbed and she would have thought, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's a good day's work. She totally would have missed it. I mean, just to put this in perspective, just think of this. And this is still tender for, for some of our older congregation who probably remember some of the weight of this. But think if there was one who could have stopped the Holocaust. Think if there was one person who decided to put their feet up and six million Jews are wiped out. That's essentially, maybe on a smaller scale, what Esther and Mordecai were up against. And so we don't want to be people who are just like blindly going, oh yeah, so Esther was put here for such a time as this. She really was. And a whole genocide at that time was avoided because of her obedience. Think of what's avoided because of your obedience. I mean, it's crazy. It's two days and ten months from the first edict of Haman, who was going to destroy the Jews, that Esther and Mordecai say the Jews now can fight for their freedom. So that means that for a little over eight months, everybody who would have watched the wicked foe, the enemy Haman, hanging from 75 feet gallows, everyone who would have watched that for eight months would be going, that God's coming for me. You think the battle was really that difficult for the Jews then, on the 13th of Adar, for that battle? I don't know. Scripture doesn't make that clear for us, but I will say this. I probably would have soiled my pants if I was one of those guys. If I was one of those people who was against the God of Israel, I would have taken note. guy hanging 75 feet in the air, dead, because he decided he was going to take matters into his own hands. Like, whoa. Maybe I ought to just kind of back off. I don't know. In verses 3 through 6, you see this idea that humility is boldly persistent, especially in verse 5. Now remember, 
you have to come into the king. You have to be summoned into his presence. In fact, Persian law actually stated that even when you were summoned into his presence, guess what you had to do? And this is worse than our day. You had to maintain a seven-foot distance, not even six. Seven-foot distance. And so here's Esther. What, it, what happens in, in verses like three through, I don't know, six, it says that Esther actually, she said Esther spoke again in verse three and fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman. So now she's saying, okay, I'm spared, Mordecai is spared, Haman's dead, got one more request. Can you imagine if you're the king, you're like kind of half hungover, (laughs) coming to your senses, and you're saying, I thought I already took care of that. And she falls at his feet, and she risks death again. Because she's boldly persistent in humility. She's going after the promise of quiet confidence. And you say, what do you mean the promise of God? Well, if you pay attention to the story of Scripture, starting back in Genesis, God created man and woman in his own image. And then he he went through a person and then a family. And this is the family of God that he's been he's been trekking with. He made a promise that the Israelites, the Jews, would be protected. And from the line of the Jews would come who? Jesus Christ. And so this whole idea of the obedience of Esther actually leads to a baby in a manger, a man on a cross, and an empty tomb, and your victory, and my joy, and your joy, and our power. Awesome. And so we don't want to just gloss over it. She's boldly persistent for a particular purpose. And what's awesome is that she realizes the blessing of God was never meant to stop with her. Matthew 28 is pretty clear. Go, therefore, and make disciples, right? Let's think of just this morning. We have two young ladies who are saying, my life is of little consequence if God doesn't get the glory. So, because I've been blessed by God, I've been saved by him through Jesus Christ and empowered and filled with his spirit, and his spirit is a missionary spirit. What's he doing? He's compelling them to go out on mission to a place of uncertainty where they don't know things. To do what? Rely on him and speak the words that he gives them. How powerful is that? What a picture of our God. Now think, if, if, if these two, if, if Tressa and, and Adele would just say, I don't know, it's kind of nice to be saved and Tremont's really cool. Don't know if I want to leave. How sad. How utterly, totally sad if they would do that. But they're not. They're carrying the gospel to a foreign land, like the scriptures promised. And so just here, they're going after the promise of God with quiet confidence. That's awesome. So in the quietness of your own heart, maybe as a family, I want you to discuss this question. Is it easy for me to receive the blessing of God and not pass it on? So take a couple of seconds now and just think on that a little bit, either individually or together as a group or a family.
All right. Let's continue on. Two more points and then a truth to life for us to wrap up with. If you look at verses 7 through 14 of chapter 8, you're going to see this idea that humility is strength under control. Strength under control. Now, I think we have a version of humility that looks different. You know, I, I think perhaps in most evangelical churches, there is a version of humility that is basically just sit quiet as a church mouse back in the corner, hands in your lap, don't upset the apple cart, always go along with what other people want. And, and I, can I just tell you, we couldn't be more wrong. That is not what humility is. Humility is not entirely deferential. Unless, of course, you're speaking deferential, like to the will of God. If I'm speaking of what God the Father wants for me, then yes, I'll defer all day long. Jesus set that example and he said, not my will, but your will be done. Deferential to the will of God. But when it comes to this idea of of humility, and it's linked with boldness, you see a tremendous picture in Esther, who doesn't push too far, but she pushes. Who doesn't settle, but she stands up. Because the fate of a nation, the fate of a whole, I don't know, <laughs> the, the fate of a whole people rests on her obedience. You see, it says in in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. It it goes on. This whole picture that we're getting at is in Galatians 6, 8, when it says you sow to the flesh and you reap destruction. That you sow to the Spirit, what do you reap? Life and peace. Now, let me tell you something, or let me ask you something. In these uncertain times where things keep shifting and nothing's certain, and, and, and maybe you see your savings dwindle or your job being taken away, how valuable is life and peace? How valuable is it? How, how, much of a commo- how precious of a commodity is life and peace? And it's available to us. So humility is strength under control. And finally, in verses 15 through 17 of chapter, we see humility's result. There's a phrase there that I love where it says, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. As a result of what? Bold humility. Bold humility brought that on. And think how different was Susa, right? It says, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Now, the same thing was decreed, or the same city had a decree laid over it a few chapters earlier. And, and after the king and Haman drank and got up from the drinking, what, drinking, what did it say about Susa? It says that Susa was thrown into confusion. That's the result. Pride leads us to confusion. Now, look what happens here in Susa when this decree is given. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great and golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And I love this. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Wow. So the result of bold humility is light and gladness and joy and honor. 
Never mind the fact that now Haman is like a whipping boy or the mocking individual of a feast that happens every year for the Jews. The most rocky celebration that the Jews have every year is celebrating the wickedness and pride of Haman and the bold humility of Esther and Mordecai. I love it. You couldn't juxtapose two things more, more distinctly than those two. You want pride? This is what you get. You want humility. You want boldness. You want life and peace. This is what happens. And so truth to life then, you have to begin to ask yourself. Esther had a really key phrase in chapter 8 where she said, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? So she humanizes the suffering that is promised. She doesn't just say, these people who are going to be hurt. She says, how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? She identifies with the suffering. Something is breaking her heart and it's moving her to action. Remember Jesus? When he rides into Jerusalem and he's lamenting this idea of hard hearts and self-righteousness and all this stuff and his lamenting leads to what? The way of the cross, the path to your freedom, the deliverance that you need. So maybe here's a good question from a truth to life perspective. Breaks your heart. What breaks it? What breaks your heart? I think of my son Oliver. When Oliver sees somebody who is handicapped, it wrecks him. There's a gentleman who, for years, has worked in Kroger and Wharton. And Oliver makes it a point every time we're there, if he sees him, to stop and talk. Because he sees that he has a handicap and it bothers him. And it breaks his heart. And that night when I'm putting him to bed, what is he doing? Hey, Dad, can we pray for Stuart? That's awesome. So maybe asking yourself, maybe, parents, you could ask your kids this question. You sad. What is it that breaks your heart? Because there's a little bit of a pathway there to humility. What do you see? You see, Jesus was heartbroken over self-righteousness. Remember Luke 18, we got two people praying. And you got the Pharisee saying, thank God that I'm not like this guy. And the Pharisee doesn't even notice that this guy is like at the far back end of the temple saying, I can't even approach you, God. He's humble. Or hardness of heart. That's another thing that broke Jesus' heart. He actually got to the point where he said that with, with divorce, it was something that broke his heart because there was hardness there. In Mark 4, he tells the story of rocky soil. People who hear the good news of God are like, man, that sounds like a great idea. But because they have no root in themselves, it springs up and dies out. And that should be a lesson to us. There is no root in us unless we are made new. Ultimately, the thing that Jesus was heartbroken over was pride. And can I just say this as we close? That it's our that leads to restoration. It is our breaking that leads to restoration, both individually, 
Like we think, man, there's no way I can confess that sin because if I do, I'm going to lose everything. Or I'm going to lose that friendship or I'm going to lose that respect or I'm going to lose... No, I, I just, no. It's just going to be between me and God. Things are going to be great. And here's the deal. It's our breaking individually that leads to our restoration. What about us corporately as a body at Northfield? What is it that leads to our breaking? Is it our reputation in the community? Is it the ability to gather in this building on a Sunday morning? Who knows? Those are the questions that we need to begin to ask. We're seeing things happen in our world that are causing Christians at an alarming rate to ask the question. And I think it's good. What is it that is breaking? You see, with humility, you go after the promise of God with quiet confidence. And I'm thankful that we have the example of Esther and Mordecai to lean into because God's word is helpful and it's awesome and it's powerful. So let me pray for us, wrap up, and um, ask the Lord's blessing on your week. So Father, thank you so much that we can be full of um, bold humility. Strengthen us now as we step out this week. Many of us will be going to school, to workplaces, to uh, other gatherings where we're around other people. And we need your strength and protection from a health perspective, but we also need it um, just from a, uh, how am I going to stand and live for Jesus today? I pray for the individual who may be watching, who's sitting here going, I I don't know that I've ever made that stand. And I pray that you would provide someone that would out and help them learn what it means to surrender their life to you, Jesus, and walk in bold humility from now till the time they see you face to face. And it's in your strong name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful week.